Welcome to Sister Scriptorians, where we are devoted to learning, likening, and lifting others one principle at a time. Episode 144, The Three Pillars of Eternity. I wish I could remember all of the details. In fact, I wish I would have taken scrupulous notes, but quite honestly, it was the last session of several sessions of state conference that I had attended, and I was restless, and my kids were restless, and the speaker's voice was soft and unimposing. Before I knew it, he was well into a story that I would have loved to have soaked in and then shared with you in better detail. But what I did capture was that this story took place in Russia, and it centered on the inability at the time for the people to access online genealogical records. And there was a schism between the mission of the church regarding our responsibility to our dead and a worldly government who was restricting and then carefully allocating their online resources. And because of this schism, the bridge required to bridge the gap just appeared to be non-existent to some, but not to God. And thankfully, he had a son who had enough faith to be able to access his power, to be an instrument in the hands of the Lord, and then resolve a problem that seemed to have non-existent solutions. And before he knew it, this man was sitting at the appointed time, face-to-face with the government official whose discernment seemed to hold all the power to the solution. So then there's the question, where does one begin? (laughs) How does one go about making this request? How does one go about pressing upon a government the importance of connecting our dead, not only to each other, but then to us? And then allowing us to use their precious resources so that we can organize and perform temple ordinances and covenants that link them back to God the Father. Especially if our perspectives differ and our priorities differ. How does one stress the importance of allegating regulated resources to this work? Where would you start? And I was humbled by the courage And the simplicity, the steady humility he possessed as he chose to start at the beginning. As he spoke to she who held all the power, he pointed to her and said, Within you is your spirit, and within me is my spirit. Our spirits are eternal. Before you lived on this earth, your spirit lived, and it lived with God. And God is your father, the literal father of your spirit. And his desire is for all of his children to return back to him one day. And upon that foundation of truth, he taught, line upon line, he taught more eternal truths, the truths we hold sacred. He taught about where we once were, why we are here, and where we are going. And he testified of our obligation to our ancestors to assist them in the work of their salvation that they could not do here on earth, but that to God, their souls were precious. And that just like they had lived before they came to earth, they still live, though they aren't here. 
and I was mesmerized by the quiet simplicity in which he laid out Father's work. That's happening on both sides of the veil, and I was intrigued to learn that the impact of his discussion was this. She was willingly and eagerly able to assist him in doing whatever was required to fix the problem so that God's work could go forth. Now, he could have gone in with impressive stats and references. He could have tried to impress her with the impact of the church and its various philanthropies around the world, its service and the temples we construct, its influence with other governments, and and then even let her know and and maybe try to persuade her, let her know the what other governments had permitted the church to do. But instead, he just went in communicating spirit to spirit speaking in quiet reverence of God the Father and and what he desires. And her heart was inspired on how she could help. It was enlightened with the changes that she could make to allow this work to go forward. And solutions were discovered and a friendship was made and God's work was able to go forth. And today that story reminds me of the simple beginning that Ammon had to begin at. As he testified and taught King Lamoni, Lamanite king over the land of Ishmael. Remember in the last episode, Ammon had quite effectively preserved the king's flocks. And the servants who had been told to encircle the flocks during this epic conflict with the plundering Lamanites, they gathered the arms that had been cut off by Ammon and they brought them before the king and they testified to him what they had witnessed. And as Ammon stood there before a stunned and perplexed king who wanted to know who he was and with what power he operated by, I'm sure Ammon wondered, where do I start? Wouldn't you? Because between Ammon and King Lamoni, there too was a schism. And some may have seen it as a problem with non-existent solutions, beliefs that were just too far spread away from one another. But Ammon... And just like the man I told you about, Ammon was a man of faith, and he 100% believed in God's grace being sufficient. Now, it's important to know a little bit more about the Lamanites. We learned last time that the Lamanites were a wild and hardened and a ferocious people, a people who delighted in murdering the Nephites, a people who would rather plunder for their riches than have to work for them. And they also worshiped idols. So today, let's just add a little bit more knowledge about them. I think it's later on in chapter 20. We're going to discover a bit more about how the Lamanites feel about the Nephites. And we learn this information from the father of Lamoni, who is king over all the land. We'll meet and we'll talk about him more next week. But for now, it's just good to know that his reaction when he sees his son with a Nephite is hostile. When the king of the land saw his son... With Ammon, he interrogated Lamoni, asking, Where are you going with this Nephite, who is one of the children of a liar? The Lamanites saw Nephi of long ago. They saw him as a liar, believing that he had robbed their fathers. And remember what they believe he robbed them of. The sword of Laban, the Liahona, even the brass plates. And the Lamanites had passed on the tradition to their children that the children of Nephi were also cunning people and they were liars. And they tried to deceive the Lamanites and rob them 
again of their property. And another tradition that had been passed down to Lamoni from his father, and then his father before that, was the belief in the Great Spirit. Now, the extent of knowledge about God appears to be quite limited. First of all, notice that they're referring to God as a spirit. Both Lamoni and his father easily accept that God created the world. But what appears to be missing from their knowledge is God's great desires for his children, God's characteristics, and then the laws that govern all of his creations. For example, Lamoni is convinced that Ammon must be the great spirit because of the power he had in defending the flocks, and that the great spirit has come to protect his servants from being killed by him, like he had done in previous events when the plundering Lamanites had scattered his flocks. And Lamoni fears now that maybe he had been wrong to kill his servants, And this is a critical point in the softening of Lamoni's heart. He is contemplating whether or not he had been wrong. And why is that a big deal? It's because of another tradition that Lamoni's father had passed down to him. And that's the belief that they supposed that whatsoever thing they did was right. Meaning that the individual chooses their own morality. Whatsoever they do is right. We too have this philosophy circling around us today, and it's called the philosophy of moral relativism. And here in scripture, we see a society that has not only been living by it, but they've become infected by it. So let's talk about moral relativism for a minute. Elder D. Todd Christofferson has spent some time on this. In fact, back in January 2018, he gave an address to the church educational service employees. He said, by relativism, I mean the view that ethical or moral truths are relative, that they depend on the attitudes and the feelings of those who hold them, and that no one can judge the validity of someone else's truth. You hear a lot of talk these days about my truth and his truth or her truth. So keeping that description in mind, let's look again at Lamoni and even the plundering Lamanites. Each believe in moral relativism, that whatsoever they choose to do is right. Yet notice the hypocritical and the heightened selfishness that comes when someone actually distanced themselves from personal responsibility. For example, Lamoni believing whatsoever he does is right, that it's his truth, it's his right, but he believes that his flock should be protected from others' truth. Even though there are some other Lamanites who believe whatsoever thing they do is right, even if that means causing some of the king's sheep to travel into parts of their land and they keep them. (laughs) It's a game of finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? In a case of moral relativism, who is right? And then who is wrong? And what would be the motivation to choose between either? And then what about the servants? What necessarily makes them wrong? What makes it a transgression for losing the king's sheep? What makes it so that they should lose their lives? Moral relativism promotes self-truth. Whatever you believe is true. There are no absolute truths, and and therefore, there are no absolute rights or wrongs. 
And so who is to say that the servants were wrong? Or the plundering Lamanites? Or even the king? What makes the actions of any of these parties right or wrong? And therefore, what is even their motivation to do right in the first place? Because who has the authority to decide what is right? When moral truths and facts can vary from person to person, when there are no guiding principles for a society, no wonder disrespect and chaos ensue. Sure, moral relativism touts tolerance. We hear that a lot, right? That we should be tolerant for everyone's point of view, claiming who am I to judge? But think about it. A judgment is being made whenever you're practicing tolerance. Just the nature of practicing tolerance means, well, I believe my way is correct or superior, but I'll allow you to think how you want to think and have your views. The idea and hope, of course, is that we just do this harmoniously. But if whatsoever I do is right, who is to say even that I need to be tolerant? Who holds that authority in the first place? This contention between King Lamoni's way and the plundering Lamanite's way, with the servants suffering at the hands of both, is a perfect example of moral relativism and its fallacy. Elder Christofferson confirms our reasoning when he teaches moral relativism doesn't work if there's to be order and justice in society. Can murder be wrong for, for most but right for some? Is a thief entitled to keep what he steals and continue stealing because he believes robbery is right for him, especially since he grew up in underprivileged circumstances? Isn't that a perfect quote for this story? And I hope you can look at the Lamanites and see where they're operating from and see what their tradition has handed down to them. The lack of a foundation in who God is and the role he plays in his creation's lives creates a schism between his creations knowing what is right and then what is wrong. And it separates us from truth. It separates us from the truth that there are absolute truths and that our acceptance of them doesn't make them less true. It just exposes our preferences. For example, Lamoni preferred to keep a sheep and to use murder as a conflict resolution tool. The Lamanites preferred to plunder instead of work, and both parties preferred to avoid facing the truth that their individual relativism had created cultural relativism that was without the light of Christ and had caused suffering to occur within their people because there were missing truths. So Lamoni questioning himself If he had done wrong, it allowed his heart to start to soften to the idea that maybe he was on the wrong side of the Great Spirit. And now Ammon, he had a willing listener. And just like the man at the beginning of this episode, Ammon began at the beginning with Lamoni. Ammon taught, There is a God who created all things which are in heaven and in earth. Heaven being the place where God dwells and all his holy angels. It's where God looks down upon all the children of men and he knows all the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And how does God know these things? Because by his hands were all the children of men created 
and they were created after the image of God. And by God's Holy Spirit, Ammon had been called to teach these truths to Lamoni and his people. And a portion of that spirit dwelt in Ammon, giving him knowledge and power according to his faith and desires which are in God. And after finding a common ground between the true character of God and the traditions of Lamoni's the Great Spirit, Ammon was then able to teach what Elder Bruce R. McConkie calls the three pillars of eternity. Ammon taught the creation of the world and of Adam, the fall of man from God's presence, and then the plan of redemption, how there always was going to be a plan of redemption from the foundation of the world before the creation even occurred. There was a plan of redemption and how Christ will come and atone for us and will be resurrected so that we can be redeemed. Can you see how the three pillars of eternity eliminate moral relativism? There is absolute truth. It is God's truth, and He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is how the world and us were created. And it is up to us whether we desire His truth or would rather operate according to our own preferences. But don't mistake them. They're not truths. And because of the fall, there is right and there is wrong. For the knowledge of good and evil is the fruit Adam and Eve partook of, making them as gods, being able to choose between the two. And what makes an action wrong? Anything that's contrary to God and his truths. Not our truths, but his and not our preferences, his ways. And that means engaging in the lofty journey of becoming like him and putting off what the natural man would have us do and choosing God's ways and emulating his characteristics and then striving to learn how to develop his attributes so that they eventually become ours. And then not picking and choosing between those attributes, but learning how to have them all work within us simultaneously. And then obeying and keeping his commandments living up to our covenants and seeking further light and knowledge from him. And what motivates us to do something so grand? It's the opportunity that we're promised to return back to Father and to receive all that he has, even eternal life and immortality. It's the hope for something better. It's the plan of redemption, knowing that we're going to mess up, that it's possible through Jesus Christ that we can be righted. He is the hope that enters into our hearts when when we choose his guiding principles of righteousness. It is the change we experience only through him after we've done our best. And all of this was taught to Lamoni. And his traditions began to be shed in a very dramatic way. And the three pillars of eternity had the power to make Lamoni's house built upon sand start to crumble. And how did Ammon go about this? I wish I could have been there. When Ammon brought out the missing link, the missing link between the Lamanites and God, the missing link that had caused confusion and hatred, caused them to forget and even be deceived. Ammon laid before King Lamoni the records and the holy scriptures, the prophecies spoken by the prophets even down to the time that their father Lehi left Jerusalem. And he rehearsed unto the king and his servants all the journeyings of their fathers in the wilderness, their suffering, their hunger, and their thirst, and their travail. 
he rehearsed unto them also concerning the rebellions of Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael. I wish we could have seen this moment in time and feel the stirrings that were taking place within all of these men who listened and were taught by this Nephite. Can you imagine the power of the Spirit working within them, breaking down all of those false traditions that they had had, and then letting the light of Christ testify that what Ammon was saying was true? Lamoni's conversion is dramatic, and we'll discuss more of that next week. But I just want you to consider the way in which Ammon approached this entire situation. He showed up in the courts of Lamoni as a friend, not an enemy, not a pompous, arrogant, we're better than you foe, but a friend who was willing to be a servant and use the power of God to serve them and to protect them, and to encircle them with true devotion. We often think that loving our fellow men or doing missionary work requires grandness. But really, what Ammon did was selfless and simple. I mean, yeah, there's the cutting off of the arms. That's pretty spectacular. But if you just take that out, he's just a faithful young man who loved God, who prepared himself with the knowledge of God. And then he went and he took care of the flock of the king. He gave that flock some water and he just did whatever it took so that he didn't lose any of them. And he stood up to those who threatened the servants and the king. And and then he went and he fed the king's horses and he got the chariots ready so that Lamoni could go to his father's feast. With Ammon's faithful loyalty to all things of the Spirit, he rejoiced to serve. He was prepared to teach. He was willing to open his mouth and teach simple truths that there is a God and he created the earth and the heavens and you. That he has a plan and you're a part of it. That you were made in his image and are his creation. And so he knows your thoughts and your intentions. And that a fall from his presence was necessary. And it's why there is opposition in all things in life. That we have to sift through and we have to choose. And it makes sense. And to ensure our success and our victory, a redemption was planned before the creation even took place. And Jesus Christ was chosen to be our Redeemer. And he was perfect for it. Through his atonement and his abundant mercy, we can repent. We can be filled with his spirit. And because of our faithfulness, he can influence our lives and direct our works, even allowing his grace to do what we can't do on our own. And just like the basics of the gospel softened the heart of a modern-day government official, the heart of Lamoni was also softened. And you know, he was true to his word. He believed all Ammon's words and begged the Lord to have mercy upon him. So don't underestimate the simpleness of the gospel message. It's truth. And the power of the light of Christ that makes such truths known unto us, and even the most unlikely. And I encourage you this week to practice speaking simple truths. Ask yourself, how can I make this even more simple? 
and then allow the Spirit of God to testify to you. That simple is enough. <laughs>